Today's scripture reading will be from Revelation 7, 11 through 14. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to them, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation and they have washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It is now time for children's Bible hour and toddle time. If you have a here and have a two-year, three-year-old, you think I get this right? Please be seated. Uncertainty often triggers anxiety and speculation. How do we view and respond to times of uncertainty without panic? The book of Revelation provides a lens to see our present day in light of what is to come. No matter what has happened or will happen, King Jesus always has the last word. Revelation chapter 7, that's going to be our text today. If you have a Bible in front of you, you have a device with the scriptures on it, you like to follow along, we'll be in Revelation chapter 7. When we left off last time, we were in chapter 6, and it looked like a scene from some Hollywood movie with lots of special effects. You may remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse were stampeding through the world, leaving behind a, a path of death and destruction. The sixth seal on the scroll was opened, and it released this mighty earthquake. And things got even stranger from that point on. The sun turned black, the moon turned red, and stars began to fall from the sky. I told you it was like a movie with special effects. All of these things, these forces, were being used by God to bring about justice and judgment in the earth and on the world. Things that were happening in some form, probably at that time, things that would happen in the future and maybe things still to come, but certainly things that would be used by God to bring about justice, to be a wake-up call for those who were outside of Christ, for those who rejected Christ, for those who were declaring Caesar as Lord rather than, <clears throat> rather than Christ as Lord. And of course, all of this was happening and being anticipated in the midst of severe persecution for those who did claim Christ as Lord. For the Christians of the first century, especially the second half of the first century, life was not easy. There was tremendous persecution. They were targeted by the world. They were tormented by the world. It cost them a lot. They had to risk everything and sometimes lost everything to follow Jesus. They looked around and saw brothers and sisters in the faith lose jobs, lose financial opportunities, lose homes, lose social standing, sometimes lose their lives. And it wasn't just watching other people or hearing about them, it happened to them. And of course, just like in our day right now, these followers of Jesus were looking around them and seeing all kinds of evil in the world. They were seeing injustice taking place. They were seeing people who were treating other people poorly. They were seeing evil seem to gain ground in the world. All of this is happening. All of this is going to happen. In many respects, some of this is happening even now. And then chapter six closes with this extremely important question. This question that we need to talk about today. 
chapter 6, verse 17. For the great day of their wrath, talking about God the Father and the Lamb of God, their wrath has come. And here's the question. And who can stand? Who can stand? When the dust settles, who will remain standing? Who can overcome the evil in this world? Who will be able to withstand all of these forces at work in our world to be a wake-up call on the world, to judge and bring justice to the world? Who will ultimately be able to stand before a holy God? Who will overcome this world? Do you see why that question is so important? It's a question that we need to be asking and answering today. We have seen, in fact, just heard a few minutes ago about some of the storms that have hit our nation recently, hurricanes. Well, about three years ago in 2018 was Hurricane Michael, a Category 5 storm that hammered the panhandle of Florida. There was one community called Mexico Beach that was flattened except for this one house. <laughs> Look at that. Turns out the builders of this house decided to build this house to withstand what they called the big one. And evidently, they did pretty well. You see, when code said you need to build your house and your walls to withstand 120 mile an hour winds, they went beyond code and built this house to withstand 250 mile per hour winds. Or for those in Oklahoma, a typical day in spring, right? <laughs> the builders reinforced the walls with concrete. They had rebar in the concrete walls. They had 40-foot pilings into the ground as a foundation. They had a steel cable from the girder over the roof to the other side and down the wall. Everything was reinforced. This thing was built to stand, and that's what it did. I see that picture, and I think that is often the strategy of the human will, isn't it? We know storms are going to happen. We know things are going to be difficult, but if I'm just strong enough, if I just build myself up and I become powerful enough, if I just make a name for myself, if I'm just good enough and smart enough and earn enough money and make my place in this world, if I can somehow gain some type of power, then I'll be able to withstand whatever comes my way. When everyone and everything else around me has fallen down, I will be standing. That is at the core of the human spirit, I think, the human desire, the human will that says, I've got to do this, I can be strong enough. Remember our question, who will stand? I think scripture gives us a little bit different answer. And so we start in chapter seven this morning. By the way, chapter seven is sort of a timeout. It's this interlude between the opening of the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh seal. We have this exit ramp because John, inspired by God, as he sees this revelation from Jesus, needs to tell us something very important. He needs to answer this question, who can stand? So Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. 
He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And so we see the winds of judgment are coming, aren't they? The storm is heading our way. Who can withstand the storm? Who will stand amid these strong winds of judgment? Well, we seem to have our answer, don't we? There is a designated 144,000 who will stand. Evidently, these are Jewish people because they're from the tribes of Israel. In fact, if you have your Bible open, you can read a little bit ahead there and you see that there are specific listings from each tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. So you can do the math. 12,000 times 12 equals what? Use your phone app. 144,000. Now, here's my question. Is this number to be taken literally? Will there be a literal 144,000 who have the seal, who are protected, who will be able to stand? Now, you probably know that there are doctrines, entire doctrines, in fact, entire religious groups built around this theology, this idea that there are 144,000 that will either be teleported up to heaven as God's special saved servants or be left behind here to evangelize the pagans, the pagan Gentiles, so that they will come to know Christ. And again, there are belief systems about that. Should we take this literal? <laughs> I gotta tell you, my mind is a little bit different, so when I think about this, one of the things I think about is, what about the guy who's 144,001? <laughs> you know, they're in line, 143,999, you're good. 144,000, you're good, wait right there. <laughs> you know, it's like when you're trying to get on an elevator and it's full and you're like, should I go? And everybody on the elevator's looking at you like, don't even try it. And the door's closed and you're like, okay, I'll catch the next one. I mean, that's what I'm thinking about, you know? I mean, is this a literal number? <laughs> well, think about Revelation. So much in Revelation, this apocalyptic genre, this apocalyptic literature, is symbolic it stands for other things I also think about what happened in chapter 5 when John heard one thing and saw something else do you remember when the scroll was there in the hand of God and the question was asked who is worthy to open the scroll no one was worthy and then an elder tells John he hears there is one worthy who is that? It's the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. That's what John hears, but then he looks, and what does he see? It's not a lion that takes the scroll. Who is it? It's the Lamb that appears to be slain. What he heard and what he saw were not exactly the same. And if you remember, we talked about that was a re-imaging of Jesus, a recasting of the primary image of Jesus from the Lion of Judah to the slain lamb that sacrificed everything for us. What John heard and what John saw were not exactly the same. So here, John hears that there are 144,000 that will be sealed, 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel that will be sealed and protected. But what does he see? Back in the text, verse 9. 
After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So John heard that there was a specific number, 144,000, that, that would withstand the day of the Lord. But what he saw was a great multitude, a great multitude that was too numerous to count from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, gathered in the throne room, praising God. Isn't it likely that this number isn't a literal number? That it is a symbol, that it is a reference, that it's not specifically talking about a designated group of Jews, ethnic Jews, or even Christians for that matter, who will evangelize the pagans, I think there's something else going on here. I think this number is symbolic. I think it means all the people of God. Throughout the ages, 12 is a very symbolic number. There were 12 tribes in the Old Covenant. There were 12 apostles in the New Covenant. If you want to do the math, maybe the math is a little bit different. Maybe it's 12 times 12 times 1,000, a number that means completeness, wholeness, fullness meaning all of God's people. This great multitude that cannot be counted from every, what, nation, tribe, and tongue. What a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. What a beautiful picture of the throne room of heaven. What a beautiful image of what the church should be right now from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And I want you to notice their posture. Where are they? Back in verse 9, they are standing before the throne. Do you remember our question from earlier at the end of chapter 6? Who can stand? The great multitude is standing before the throne of God, standing in the presence of God, a holy and a perfect God. How can they do that? Well, notice what they are wearing. Also in verse 9, what are they wearing? White robes. We saw this in the previous chapter. Remember, the fifth seal is opened from the scroll. It represents the martyrs, those who have died for their faith. And they cry out, how long, Lord? How long, O sovereign Lord, until you vindicate us, until you make the wrongs of the world right? How long until the day of the Lord? And you remember the answer. Back in chapter 6, verse 11. Then each one of them was given what? A white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been so this massive multitude of God's people is standing in the presence of God wearing white robes get the picture in your mind and then someone asked the question that we as the readers as probably first century Christians as the listeners would ask who are those people Back in the text, verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, John says, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes. They have made them white in the blood of the lamb. 
He says they have come out of this great tribulation. What is this great tribulation? Is it some cataclysmic event that we have to look forward to, (laughs) to worry about, to anticipate in the future? I don't really think so. Although, (laughs) maybe this right here is the great tribulation. It's a pandemic and it's all the fallout from the pandemic. We could make that work, couldn't we? I don't think that's what he's talking about. Although as each day goes by, I start to wonder. You see, I think there's something more happening here. In the very first chapter of Revelation, the same word is used. Chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I am your brother, your companion in the suffering. That word suffering, I think the NIV uses that word. It's the same Greek word for tribulation. I am your companion, your partner in this tribulation that we are in. Look around. Things aren't as they should be. Evil is gaining ground. There is injustice in our world. These Christians are being persecuted. The culture is pressing in. We are in this tribulation. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 2, verse 9, he writes in this letter to the church in Smyrna, and he says, I know of your sufferings. I know of your tribulations. The same word. That word means to actually press together. To press together so forcefully that it causes pressure. The great tribulation is something that they are living out, I believe. And in many ways, because we still live in the fallen world, because sin is so prevalent, because evil is given access to our world, that we live in the great tribulation. But he says this multitude will come out of that. They will come out of that. And they will survive. They will survive being squeezed by a pagan culture. They will survive the pressure that comes with living with faith in a world that is faithless. They will be able to stand and withstand. They will overcome this world. Ultimately, they will stand on the day of the Lord. Well, are those the ones who are strong enough? Are those the ones who are powerful enough? those who have a certain ability, those who have come to church every time the doors were open, those who know the Bible, those who help other people who are in need. Is that who we're talking about here? Those things are important. But that's not what he says. The only ones who will stand are those who are wearing white robes who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's it. That's who will stand. That's the answer to the question at the end of chapter 6. Who will overcome this world? Those who wear a white robe, who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's interesting, by the 4th century, the church did something sort of unique. Many times when people were baptized, they went into the baptistry without many of their clothes sometimes without all of their clothes. They went into the baptistry that way to reenact, to reflect the suffering and the humiliation of Christ as he hung on the cross, totally exposed. And they're baptized into the waters of Christ, dying to self, being raised to live this new life. And as they're raised up out of the water, the first thing they're given is a white robe to wear symbolizing the purity that comes from being washed in the blood of the Lamb, symbolizing the newness of life that they have. He says, those are the ones who will stand. 
And I want you to notice what is promised to them, what is promised to us. Chapter 7, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Did you see the switch there? The lamb will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how inviting, how comforting, how assuring these words would have been to these first century Christians? Can you imagine Christians who are suffering because of their faith, who are saying that this isn't fair, this isn't right, this shouldn't be this way, there is injustice not only in the world, but right here in my own life. Can you imagine how reassuring, how inviting, how comforting these words would have been? That God will shelter you with his presence. That word literally means to build a tent over you, to put a canopy of protection over you, that God will tabernacle among you with his presence. The thing that they needed and wanted most, God's protection, God's provision, they are told it is yours. You will have it. I can't imagine how inviting, how reassuring that would sound to them. See, the only way we can stand is under the shelter of God. That's the only way. Not on our own strength, not like the beach house that withstood the storm because it was built to be strong, built to be powerful, built to last, built to stand. You can't be good enough. You can't know enough. You can't do enough good to make yourself holy. It's impossible. We are sinners who live in a fallen world. And on the day of the Lord, there will be justice. And if there's going to be justice, that means there's going to be judgment. And judgment and justice mean one thing, and that is making the things that were wrong right. That means people getting what they deserve. What do you think about that? Getting what you deserve. There's a couple of stories, I I assume that they are true, I, I think that they are. In a couple of different places, a local judge decided a very unique sentence for people who robbed or stole things, I guess they didn't rob, they stole things from Walmart. He told them they have to wear a sandwich board that says to everyone, I am a thief, I stole from Walmart. And they have to wear it actually in the parking lot right in front of Walmart. That's a part of their sentence. The idea is that the humiliation will keep them from doing this again. That the consequences of people judging them and shaming them and just the embarrassment of that will keep them from stealing from Walmart again. Now, I don't know how effective it is. I'm sure it's probably pretty effective, or it should be at least. But I want you to think for a minute. What if you had to stand in front of the world, wearing a sandwich board with all of your sins written on it. 
Some of us would need a lot smaller font, wouldn't we, to get them all on there. Maybe, maybe we need pages. It'd be more like a flip chart than a sandwich board. But can you imagine standing up and everyone who walks by could just see, oh, ooh, wow, ooh. Can you imagine standing before the Lord on the day of the Lord, before witnesses of heaven and earth, with all of your sins right there, you wearing them for everyone to see. Can you imagine the shame, the humiliation? You see, that is what justice demands. That things that are wrong are be, will be made right. That people will get what they deserve. That's justice. But we don't get justice with Jesus. We get mercy Jesus comes along and he sees that sandwich board, that sign that we're wearing, and you know what he does with it? He takes it off of us. And he doesn't just throw it away. He doesn't even just set it on fire. You know what he does? He puts it on himself. He says, I will wear those sins of yours. Those will become my sins for you. And I will take on the humiliation and the shame and the sentence of death that comes with that because there is justice. That's what Jesus does. But he doesn't just take that from us and put it on us. What else does he do? He gives us something else to wear. He gives us a white robe. He robes us. He clothes us in purity and newness of life and abundance of life and eternal life. What a gift. That's mercy. That's grace. That's what the great multitude who are gathered in the throne room of God, standing before the Father and before the Lamb, praising Him, that's what they are wearing. Because of His mercy. And so let me ask you a question this morning. Are you wearing a white robe? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's a very serious question. And here's the thing, only you can answer that no one can answer for you, and no one can make you or choose for you. This has to be your choice. Your, your parents can't, can't answer that for you. Your spouse, you can't say, well, you know, he or she has a white robe, and I think it's big enough to fit both of us, and so I'm just going to tag along. No, this is, this is on you. Are you wearing a white robe? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. So in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Remember the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel? He says, if you are clothed with Christ, guess what? You are in the great multitude. Clothed with Christ. Sheltered by God. That's where I want to be. Isn't that where you want to be? It's up to you. God gives you freedom to choose because he loves you. But he calls you. He invites you. So much of Revelation is not just a description of what is happening and what will happen. It is an invitation to claim Jesus is Lord. 
Will you do that today? Whatever's holding you back, take that next step. If it's talking to someone, your parent, someone you trust, a friend, a minister, a shepherd, praying about it, opening up the word of God, whatever it is, take that next step. Maybe today you're ready to give your life to Christ, to go into that water, die to yourself, and receive that white robe. If that's the case, we want to honor that decision today. If you're online, you can go to our prayer page and reach out to us there. If you're here today, in just a moment, there'll be a couple of shepherds and their wives in the parlor, a room right behind me. You can exit out of these doors, go there. They'll be happy to have some personal time with you and pray for you and encourage you, or maybe it's something that you want to make known among the congregation today. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Have you been